Hi, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, I am joined by Victoria Gill, and she has achieved some phenomenal things in her time over the last few years. So not only is she a TEDx speaker, she's a multiple business owner and a former athlete. So welcome to the show, Victoria. Hello, thank you so much for having me. So normally this is where we kind of unpick and unpack the kind of history first, but there's so much to start with with you. Uh, I'm at a loss of where to really begin. So I think really, let's start with the athlete stuff because that's interesting and then we can run into the business and mindset afterwards. So former athlete, how long did you compete for and what did you compete in? I started competing in, gosh, 2013 and I finished in 2017. So it was actually quite a short space of time. Uh, but I've always done something active. It's always been part of my life. So obviously we're focusing here on the bodybuilding side of stuff, but I've actually always competed in something from the age of three years old. So I've, I've always been into competitive sport. And I kind of got into bodybuilding. I'd, I'd done stunt cheerleading at university. So I'm a national champion stunt cheerleader, which I always like to tell people about. And when I came back from university, I just had nothing to sort of strive for I'd also had a really difficult journey with my physical health mm -hmm. and the thing that had kind of kept me going through that was going to at the time fitness classes so mm -hmm. that one hour where I'd stand in a fitness class was the only hour where I wasn't thinking about all this other external stress that I kind of got going on and I'll be totally honest when I came back from university, finished my master's, it was my now ex-partner. The first thing he said to me was, do you compete? And as a, an ex-dancer, obviously stunt cheerleader, ex-track athlete, I thought, I don't, I don't understand the question. Do I compete in what? And it was him that actually got me into weight training properly. And I started weight training in the February and I think it was eight months later, I was doing the British final. So I did it, the turnaround from me picking up, my first, set, <laughs> picking up my first set of weights yeah. to getting on stage. And then I, I became a national champion in my next competition. So I did that really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. So it was a very short, concise journey in competing, in the world of competing. But I went from the bottom straight to the top very, very fast and then just mm -hmm. sustained that the whole way through. I'm really interested, actually, in your history. Talk to me a little bit more about your, you, you know, you said you were competing from about three years old. What I've noticed with a lot of people that I speak to on the podcast and just privately is athletes tend to always be athletes. And I think it's something that's instilled in them early. And I think that there's something to be said about the, um, the link between competitiveness and business success. And I think that, you know, someone like yourself who's been competing from a very young age is also a very good example of that. So what were you doing from about three till pre-bodybuilding days? I completely agree. So I started dancing when I was three years old. I was on a stage by the age of three. And it's not for me, it's not even just business. It's been in absolutely everything that I've done. So even when I was at school, I was head girl at school I used to get the top grades <laughs> top grades and everything um when I went to university I graduated from my master's with the highest uh marked class of master's degree in my year um so everything I've ever done I've always strived to be 
not just at the top, but number one. And I actually think that comes a lot from my upbringing, but also because I was put into such a competitive environment from such a young age. So three years old and you're competing, it's just something that obviously then becomes a little bit addictive, but I've always just had this thing about striving to be the absolute best that I can possibly be. But mm. everything I've kind of learned through competing, I truly believe has then been what's helped me to become so successful in business. My mm. master's is actually in international business and retail, but I learned more about what skills I needed what mindset I needed to be successful in business through competing not through the actual qualification the piece of paper that I've got to say to warrant that I can do that mm. what style of dance did you do because not many people know this and I'm going to admit this actually I'm not embarrassed of it anymore but I used to do dance when I was my mum was a teacher so I used to do dance I used to do tap ballet modern jazz like all that sort of stuff we used to do shows as well um yeah. so style of dance did you used to exactly the same as you I did the exact same style of dancing tap was my forte that was what I was the best at Um, and I was nominated for a scholarship when I was very very young and I and you will probably resonate with this as well I think things that you learn through something like dance from being such a young age so discipline having to be so disciplined attention to detail having Mm -hmm. to get your technique absolutely right Mm -hmm. sacrifice and commitment you know what? I remember being obviously a young kid and thinking I've got to go dancing again. And I'd go five, five, six times a week. Every school holiday was filled with competitions. We always had shows to strive for. Then obviously, again, you're in the competitive environment. And I think those skills that I absorbed from such a young age have been so fundamental in then what I've in obviously then what I've gone on to do. Um, mm-hmm. And what I can remember hating dancing when I was a kid. I did. I was really good at it, but I didn't enjoy yeah. it. I didn't. I always used to kind of feel a bit resentful towards my parents that I had to go. But now, obviously, I'm an adult. I am so grateful that they took me. I'm so yeah. grateful that they made me me stay committed to it because it's taught me so much that has then obviously guided me on the trajectory that I've I've gone down. I resonate with that so much because I used to do. I was really competitive as a kid and and the, the competitiveness in me is still there. Um, but I was doing dance. I was doing uh, gymnastics, trampolining. So every single one of my days I remember was full, you know, I'd, after school, it was full. I didn't have time for playing with friends, watching films, like genuinely mm-hmm. I'd get picked up from like the after school club and I'd be doing something from six till nine and I go to sleep. And then the weekend Saturday, I remember I'd get up, I'd go do swimming and then I'd go do dance and then I'd go do American football. And then Sunday was normal football. So it was, there was no time. I remember really, like you say, feeling almost resentful for having to do all this when I wasn't having like a air quotes, normal, like childhood. Like I just wanted to go out and play with my friends, but then also as well, looking back on that now with hindsight, I have such um, gratitude for that experience. Cause I think it brings so much to the table. I think it brings so much understanding of, of life um, that you don't necessarily get unless you're in that competitive realm. Yeah, resilience and, and those sorts of things as well. I remember we used to do a competition, it was the autumn sort of time, so October, and my mum would have to get us out of bed at sort of like 
5 a.m. so that she could do our hair, do our makeup. And again, I hated it at the time, being a little kid, having your head ragged about whilst your mum's brushing your hair, trying to get it in the world's tightest bun. But then obviously when I got into competing, getting up at half five to get my, my cardio in was easy for me because it wasn't something that was so alien. Then obviously with business, if I have to get up again at half five, it's not something that's unusual or alien to me. I'm able to do it because I've been doing it for such a long time. And I think they're such valuable lessons to, to kind of get in when you are younger, understanding how to be resilient, understanding how to persevere when things don't quite go your way. And, and as I said earlier, paying attention to all the little things and getting things right, taking pride in, in what you do and all these sorts of things. I think it's so, so important. Um, but yeah, I'm exactly the same. I'm, in hindsight, I'm so grateful that my parents did make me do that as much as I hated it at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. So talk to me a little bit about lots of people when they get into the competing worlds, you know, they, they thrive on it, they do so well on it, and it becomes their kind of personality or their identity. So what was it that made you kind of step away from that and, you know, start looking for something else as you were so successful at it? I think because I'd already got an awareness of the psychology around competing. So my degree is in psychology and I actually started a PhD and my PhD, my research topic was post-psychological factors of professional athletes. So mm. I'd already got quite a high awareness of what the sort of psychology around being an athlete is. Mm -hmm. But whilst I was competing, it did very much become my identity and it's almost as if I totally lost connection to all the other things that I either had done or what are the skills I'd got, what are the interest areas I'd got, my academic side that I have, my creative side that I have, all those things I just totally lost. Mm. And I think I got to a point where I just, sounds a bit of a cliche thing to say, but I didn't really recognize who I was anymore. I'd got no connection to me. And even though I looked, I'm doing air quotes, I looked great on paper, looked great in a picture, had yeah. a perfect body, again, air quotes, um, but I was so disconnected to, to me, to what I had mm -hmm. on the inside and who I feel like I truly am. And all these parts of me were massively suppressed. I was obviously having to assert myself in a very masculine way. I was really, really muscular. Um, and that sort of masculine side was really taking over. And I just got this total separation between who I was and who I actually am. And I just thought, right, something's got to change here because my mental health and my physical health were quickly declining. Mm -hmm. And I'm good at making tough decisions. I'm happy to make tough decisions if I truly believe that that is the right thing to do. And my gut instinct was, this is not, this isn't worth it. No mm -hmm. amount of success is worth sacrificing your mental and physical health for, or even sacrificing that disconnection between you and yourself. Mm -hmm. So I think it was about maybe 10 months after I did my last competition, I just thought, this is just not, this isn't me anymore. And mm -hmm. I need to honor who I truly am. And this is not it. So I took a big step away. So you mentioned something there that's quite fascinating. And I want to unpick that a little bit. Um, you mentioned it kind of, it resonated and it, and it was fulfilling one area of your life, but it kind of cut off from a lot of other areas. Um, that's something that I relate to massively as well. Cause I think with being competitive, you have, you do have to check yourself because 
you do get tunnel vision. You do get, this is what I want and I'm going to do everything in my power to go get it. So how did you pull yourself back a little bit in order to find the, the road to success with the other areas of the other pillars, the other pillars in your life? (laughs) So it's extreme, but I, um, I went and lived on an ashram in Croatia. (laughs) Okay. I knew I'd got this, obviously this big disconnect and I felt like I'd been pursuing a path to appease what other people wanted me to be or what I thought kind of success means obviously the suit really superficial stuff and I knew that that is not what ultimately is going to make me happy and I had to just completely sort of detach myself for a little while so that I could refigure out right what is it that actually makes me happy what are these parts of myself that I've massively suppressed and can't remember so I went and lived on an an ashram in Croatia um, for about six weeks Mm-hmm. And we had no connection to the outside world. So no phone, no laptops, no internet, no TV, um, not really any connection with any other people other than who was on the ashram. We meditated for an hour every morning, every evening. We did a yoga practice every morning, every evening. And the rest of the day was filled with either teaching or study time. And we didn't even have any mirrors, which I know sounds like a really strange thing to highlight, but you don't look in a mirror for six weeks. You suddenly realize, again, sounds a bit cliche, but what's on the outside is just really not that important. Mm -hmm. You don't don't care. And when I came home, I went into um, the airport, I think it was in Zagreb, and I, I remember looking in the mirror thinking, oh my God, that's what I look like. (laughs) it was really really bizarre but I had to take a huge step back and just totally reset my perception of of everything absolutely Mm. everything who I'd got around me what activities I was doing like where my energy was going Mm. and just make huge changes I quit my job I stopped the job I was doing obviously stopped competing um Mm. and then eight weeks later I opened a yoga studio that is insane honestly that sounds something that i would love to do um six weeks how enlightening was that experience you know obviously you came back and completely changed everything in your life for obvious reasons but the moments of meditation like i I meditate fairly regularly and the moments of meditation and you do get these enlightened kind of moments but also doing that in an ashram for six weeks Talk to me a little bit more about that because it's that is honestly something that really fascinates me. It completely changed my life, Dan. If I'm, that was yeah. the, the that was the trans the start of the transformation that's then led on to the last few years of my life. And mm-hmm. doing when we started the, in the first sort of ten days, I found it so uncomfortably difficult painful there was so much resistance in me it was actually Mm. it was quite traumatic 10 days if I'm honest but I knew obviously if I keep working through this it is going to get better and it did and it was a really tough tough start for me I think my brain was almost going through sort of like a purge of all loads of different things that I've experienced Mm. lots of different traumatic experiences all sorts of stuff And it was like my brain was having to try and filter all this stuff out before it could then 
see clearly it's like getting all the dust off of a mirror it had to get it all off first so that it, then things could be seen a little bit more clearer but having that complete detachment from the external world I don't think we realize as individuals how much we are influenced by all sorts of different things obviously what we see on tv mm-hmm. what constantly we are fed through social media the opinions of other people that we have around us, all sorts of stuff. We have so much mm-hmm. factors that influence who we are. And I think when you then go into phases where all that is cut off and you just sit with yourself and you're able to just sit with yourself, that is huge. Because most people can't sit in silence. They're not mm-hmm. okay with, people aren't okay with pauses anymore. We have to fill every second, every day with some sort of noise. And sometimes Mm. it's good to sit in that silence because if you're able to sit in that silence and you can sit with yourself, then that's how you ultimately find what I believe is real happiness. You Mm -hmm. have to be happy as you right now and accepting of yourself. But I think you can't do that unless you kind of sit and have that meditative time. Mm. Yeah, meditation is a big part of my life, my practice. I think that it's something that, we take our physical health now, you know, especially over the last few years, everybody is interested in their physical health, you know, for reasons more, you know, along the lines of the pandemic or just, it's just more relevant for people. But I think that mental health and um, practice is something that is just not there anymore. You know, thousands of years ago, you look at cultures, you look at, you know, the Buddhist culture, you look at ancient Indian like cultures, most cultures had some form of, meditation and even to a certain extent if you think prayer you know in christianity if they had their eyes shut and they were you know doing a prayer for 10 15 20 minutes they were probably doing some form of meditation and it's something that we it fascinates me how we've we've got so wrong you know as we've developed as a culture and as a society that we've technologically advanced but we've taken a step back from the 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 spiritual from like within ourselves and understanding that it really it boggles me that thousands of years ago they knew that that was something that we needed to do to be healthy individuals and yet now if you talk to people about meditation a lot of people that aren't in that kind of area are like nah don't need that yeah or they think it's a really strange thing to do or what I come across a lot is if obviously I talk to someone about meditation, oh, I can't do that. Like, do you have a body that breathes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, then you can meditate. And I think it's because we've filled, like I said earlier, we've filled, we have to fill every pause. And mm-hmm. like you were saying with, with prayer, it's, it is the practice of being present and mindful mm-hmm. and just completely slowing down. That's it. That's mm. literally it. So one of my favorite books is um, The Things You Can See When You Slow Down. And it's such a beautiful book. It's so, and it's so simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, there's nothing in it that's excessively yeah. complicated. It's a really, really simple book. But we're just not very good anymore at being able to stop and pause and be really connected to the present moment. We're either mm-hmm. obviously ruminating about things that have already happened or hypothesizing about things that are on their way or completely... Mm-hmm addicted because i do believe it's an addiction now addicted to our feeds and watching what other people are doing that we've just totally lost that connection to the present moment and grounding ourselves in that 
Mm. We're definitely we're definitely too connected. I think I think there was um I don't know how true it is, but I'm going to repeat it or at least try to repeat it. But there was um there was a quote that I saw a few years ago that kind of said that we see or we we we're exposed to more information now on a daily basis than the, we we were in ten years. So now, because of our phones, because of the news, whatever it is, we're exposed to that much more information. Like that's that to me. If that's true, that is insane. I yeah, and I it probably is, isn't it? And if you think, so I think people get burnt out more easily now as well because because we are so exposed to such excessive amounts of information. So something that I obviously say to my clients is, you don't have your phone in your bedroom. You if you because what most people do is set their alarm on their phone. Mm -hmm. So you either go to sleep and the last thing you've done is look at your phone. You wake up. The first thing you do is look at your phone. Mm -hmm. Your brain is then having to process thousands of tiny little bits of information. It's asking and question. It's answering questions. It's making decisions. It's mm -hmm. ruminating on different things. It's obviously making judgments of different things. Your brain's having to work 10 times harder and process all this information. Mm -hmm. So there's no wonder we're all burnt out because our brain's having to work so much harder. Even when we think we're mindlessly scrolling, you aren't. Your brain's still having to process pictures, mm -hmm. words, videos, all this different sort of stuff. And I, I completely agree. I think social media is incredible if we're able to use it responsibly and effectively but I do think social media is actually very antisocial as well oh 100% did you know as well that the um like Facebook and, and companies where it's all scrolling did you know they actually um employed gambling what's the title uh, technicians to help them design those apps to help them to be more addictive to help them to get more screen time so that they could then use that to then sell yeah, and it's it's Which, never ending, is it? It's yeah. it's just absolutely never ending. There's no end to it. So I would be fascinated to really research and look into areas of addiction and social media. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's that it's that dopamine spike. It's that instant hit, isn't it? You know, the serotonin levels of you, and and that's why one of the reasons you shouldn't do it before bed because it really messes up your sleep pattern. Not just the blue light, the hormone imbalance in your brain is saying it's time to wake up now. I'm sure somebody told me that's why it's called Instagram because it's like an instant gram. <laughs> I'm sure someone. Wow. Told me. I'm sure someone told that's me. That's true. That's scary. That's why it's called Instagram because it's like an instant gram. <laughs> In that wow. dopamine hit, yeah. 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 No, that that yeah, that that's blown my mind for a split second there. Actually, I lost my train <laughs> of thought. Okay, so let's talk. I know you're really, really passionate about the feminine, about you know um let's let's actually for people that aren't in the spiritual realm let's describe what that is because that doesn't necessarily have to just be male and female does it so what is the feminine so the feminine to me um you've nailed it on the head so it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not like to me it isn't an isolated category it's more of like a spectrum and it doesn't mean male or female which is where i think most people in misinterpret that and think as soon as you say feminine they think you mean women and it's not obviously I've got a sense of masculine energy and feminine energy as have you so the feminine to me is very open to interpretation to each individual and oh, because we all express it and we all emulate it in different ways but for me it's having the courage to express and not suppress any parts which society otherwise tells me to do 
So mm-hmm. I would say I actually have a really strong sense of masculine energy as well. And the key here mm-hmm. is that we're not differentiating between the two. We've got a blend. We all have our own unique blend. Mm-hmm. But to me, feminine energy is just being able to express the parts that I think society otherwise doesn't tell us to suppress, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Is this where you found yourself at the ashram and you kind of had these enlightened experiences? Is this where it all began for you? Is this where you kind of thought, you know what, like I'm you, I'm suddenly a lot more attuned with, in touch, however you want to label that, with my masculine energy and I really just want to get back to being more balanced? I think so. And I think because prior to competing, I would say I did have a very strong feminine energy, but my masculine energy was probably very weak. I wasn't very assertive and I didn't put across certain characteristics I would associate with the masculine. Then when I got into competing, we had a complete shift and my feminine energy completely died a death and my masculine energy totally took over. And I still didn't feel... I still didn't have that sort of sense of connection to myself. I still felt very, very lost. I still Mm -hmm. didn't really know who I was and didn't quite fit into where I thought I should be, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think when I went and did my training and lived on the ashram, I figured out a way that the two can coexist. Mm -hmm. And I think it was that for me. Um, Yeah, I think it was definitely there. And then establishing what traits actually encompass being feminine to me questioning myself well why have I suppressed these parts of myself for such a long time Mm -hmm. and why have I let these masculine traits completely take take over and Mm -hmm. dominate my personality the way that I express myself the way I put myself out into the world when I know there's a lot of cognitive dissonance within me so there's a complete mismatch of what my core values are and how I'm actually acting Mm-hmm. And I think going to the ashram was the start for me of bringing the two together so that they could coexist and understanding mm-hmm. having one strong doesn't mean the other one has to be weaker. Mm-hmm. And the two can coexist. It's so interesting that you mention that because in psychology, often people and societies, we pendulum. We don't, we don't make small adjustments. If we see something that we don't like, we often will go to the other extreme so if we see someone, if we're brought up by parents that are overly aggressive or overly angry, you know, we tend to then suppress those areas and 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 really pendulum to the other side and let too much go. So trouble having setting boundaries and those sorts of things. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. So you're at this ashram, you've kind of figured out you've been suppressing these areas. How did you go about getting back in touch with these areas, this, this femininity that you'd suppressed? I think making huge, just making huge changes to my life and really questioning well, what, what do I believe? What do I think? What do I want? And appeasing that then rather, rather than appeasing what everybody else wanted me to be, what society wants you to be, um, and just making some really significant changes. So obviously I opened my yoga studio and just starting to allow those more feminine traits to be present again and be very, very mindful of them. So for example, things like forgiveness is stereotypically associated with being feminine. So allowing myself to practice more forgiveness, whereas when I was kind of in masculine mode, I was 
excuse my French, I was a really cold-faced bitch. <laughs> really <laughs> hard face and did there was no forgiveness, nothing at all. Yeah. And I think just practicing the certain traits, being aware of them and letting myself have the freedom and the space mm-hmm. to to have those characteristics in place and having to allow myself to have the vulnerability as well, taking a wall down because I'd massively built up this big, great, big wall that nobody mm. could get through and just being really, really brave to bring it back down again. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you were saying earlier about sort of pendulum thinking, we have this dualistic way of thinking, don't we? And it's got to be one or the other. And mm-hmm. I think International Women's Day, which we've just had, is always a really interesting day for me. I find it fascinating because what you tend to find is when you start to celebrate women, people question, why do you hate men? And I always think, what? That's not what I'm saying. I love women and men, but today we're just celebrating women. But that doesn't mean, it's like when you say you're a feminist, people just assume she hates men. And the two, the the two Mm -hmm. don't, they're not connected. We don't have to have one or the other. So I think it was just allowing the traits I personally associate with being feminine to come through and be really, really brave to let them be part of me and how I conduct myself, even though society tells us not to, but also figuring out which parts of my masculine energy are actually really positive and really beneficial. Because we also have this, I don't like this phrase, but we also have this toxic masculine phrase that's quite, it's quite trending at the minute. Mm -hmm. And again, because we have such dualistic thinking, people we're all assuming that the masculine is just toxic and it's not it's the the masculine is mm-hmm. amazing it's incredibly powerful it's beautiful it's got so much magic in it but we've got this sort of label attached to it now that it's toxic yeah. and so again it was just questioning right what what sort of parts of me that that do represent the masculine do I love about myself and do I want to keep and just mm-hmm. finding a way of, it was almost like rediscovering an identity <laughs> yeah. to figure out how these two could exist. And it was hard. I did go through like a really strange sort of transitional period, they're like growing pains, but I did most of that. I managed to do that in the ashram mm-hmm. where I didn't have external influence and I had the ability to just really hone in on, right, what does Victoria think? Mm-hmm. What are Victoria's values? What do I think? What do I feel? Who, who am I? And just going internally, because we all look externally to solve our problems and you never can. It's always internally. So just spending that time to go deep with it. Yeah, you mentioned something there as well. Um, and I've completely lost my train of thought. But though, oh yeah, the toxic masculinity. I think I've had a similar experience to that recently. I've been going to a group um, it's a great group. It's it's called Men's Circle. So I don't, I don't know if you've heard of it, but we were talking about in that group about positive masculinity. And even though I'm fully logically aware of the balance that we need within ourselves between masculine and feminine, um, there was something like almost like I almost like cringed when we were talking about like the the positivity of masculinity because of the conditioning of our society, mm-hmm. because of the conditioning of you know, we, we, we talk about so much of these toxic things that men do or masculinity can do. It's instantly like a, like a, almost a cringe moment. And um, I think there's something to be said about, I think both, you know, men, women, society, we need that balance. We need 
the healthy mix of masculine and femininity within ourselves. Because otherwise, if you swing more towards the femininity, you are always going to be too forgiving, less boundary setting, and that could cause you issues. If you're too the opposite way, you know, if you pendulum too far the opposite way, then you're going to be too cold, too callous, um, too aggressive. And those things are not qualities of a, of a balanced human being that's going to live a fulfilled life. Yeah, I absolutely. I could not agree more. And it's understanding the worth, the value, the purpose, the contribution of both. Mm. Both are equally, they're not the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where we also sometimes get things wrong. The masculine and the feminine can't be treated the same because they're not the same. They're different energies, mm-hmm. but they're equally just as strong, as incredible, like I say, as mm-hmm. contributing to the society that we have. But it's so interesting how generally we're all taught that anything associated with being feminine is weak and anything that is associated with being masculine is strong, but don't be too masculine because then you're toxically masculine. And it's like, <laughs> it's yeah. like all these yeah. conditions on well, what are we supposed to, how are we supposed to act? Who are we supposed to be? And I think that's why a lot of people just don't really know who they are. And mm. that's quite sad. Mm. And I think in 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 the UK as well, I'll, I'll say the UK, I won't say the West because that's my experience. But I think in the UK, we're so conditioned to, you know, that the path that you follow is you go to school, you go to college, you go to uni, you get a good job, you get married, you buy a house, you settle down and that's it. That's your life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but there is something wrong with that. If that doesn't resonate with you, if that doesn't fulfill you, if that's not something that, you know, is a pathway that you're going to enjoy. Yeah. And I think one of the main traits that we, again, I'll say the UK as well, as well, that we sort of dampen down is curiosity. And I think to be curious is so important. So I've never followed convention we're doing air quotes again I've never followed convention I've always kind of done something a little bit different Mm. that people think that's a bit weird yeah because I've always had this really strong sense of curiosity to question well why do we have to work nine till five who's told who's told us that Mm -hmm. why is that normal or who decided that we have to work Monday to Friday or who decided that I'm supposed to get married and have babies and a mortgage and, and and I've just always been really really inquisitive and challenged what is sort of spoon fed to us all as being normal and realizing that if that's not what resonates with you or sits well with you, it's okay to question that and do something else Mm -hmm. that you do want to do. Because again, going back to that concept of cognitive dissonance, if you're leading a life that isn't actually in alignment with your values, you're always going to feel like something's not right. But I think if you've got the courage to be curious and question different things, you're more likely to then pursue a path that, that does resonate with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think we, we are massively, especially in the UK, we're, we're kind of given a roadmap to the normal average life, aren't we? And it's the expectation that we should all follow that. Like I'm 30, 34. I had to think about that then. <laughs> I'm 34. And the amount of times I get, well, you, you, your clock's ticking. Have you not thought about kids yet? And I think oh, it's so bizarre. It's yeah. <laughs> such an odd thing. <laughs> such an odd thing that we yeah. do. So, yeah. and, and I think as well that, that you spoke about success. I think 
most people's idea of success is spoon fed to them by the previous generation. And I think, you know, with social media, I've spoken to a few people on this recently with social media, we have this untapped resource of opportunity that has never been available to people before we're living in the era that has gone through, you know, we, we, I mean, you're old enough as well to have not had internet as a child, really, you know, dial up internet was terrible. And then, you know, we got broadband and then social media came about and changed the game. Now social media is used for business. It's used for so many other things, whereas it was just designed for connecting with your friends. And I think that we're spoon fed what is air quote successful by these people of previous generations who you know, that was their level of success because that was the only route that they had. And I think now we have we have like a, a tree, like a branch where we can jump off at any point and get to the same end result, but with it being fulfilled or a fulfilling road for each individual. And I think that that's something that so many people that I speak to on a daily basis or weekly basis where, you know, whether it's clients or friends, we we forget that actually it doesn't doesn't matter how you get there the the road to success is actually the fun bit I think as well Dan it's actually really interesting and this has just suddenly come to me now that it's probably our sort of generation as well because if you look at obviously children now and and young adults now they're open-minded to wanting to be an influencer or wanting to be a youtuber and all these sort of non-conventional sort of pathways that obviously we didn't have when we were growing up and I think they're more open-minded as a generation but I think it's sort of us in the middle where we we were the transitional phase weren't we really like you say we had dial up internet and all those sorts of things and I think it's probably within the ages of sort of late 20s to mid 40s I'd probably say around that sort of age where where we have been spoon fed from previous generations, this is what is the normal thing to do. Mm-hmm. And we were sort of like the testing phase, weren't we? Of these yeah. Because like I say, when you look at younger generations now, they're a bit more open-minded to doing non-conventional stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's definitely true. Because if you think about, think about anything, an influencer wasn't, wasn't a thing, you know, now it, is a thing you can make a very good living off that you know professional gaming if you were someone that you know in our age played on their computer console whatever brand it was for hours and hours a day you were wasting time you know go out and do something that was the kind of message but now you can get paid a ton of money to be a twitch great gamer or a competitive gamer and yeah no i think you've hit the nail on the head there actually and i hadn't really thought about that so that's interesting um so let's talk about how how people can apply the feminine into their life how can they really do the work to be more connected with their femininity or masculinity depending on I think in terms of the femininity I think step number one is understanding that it's not associated with weakness or it's not a downgrade or it's not because that's what we tend to do we associate the feminine as being the lesser of the two it's the second class choice so I think breaking that barrier down first and foremost and actually challenging people's perceptions of what 
it means to be feminine and it doesn't actually mean anything to do with weakness it's the perception that we have of it so to me that is step number one for everybody in society men and women um and being open-minded to allowing these things in because again within our society we're, we're taught to suppress those parts of us we're, we're mm-hmm. taught that things that are stereotypically associated with the masculine are more desirable and things associated with the feminine are less desirable so first of all having that curiosity being really brave to challenge what we are taught as being desirable and not desirable and then for me it's allowing certain characteristics in and understanding the value the importance and what sort of strength they can actually have so we've got things like softness so of course when I did my TEDx talk these are the sorts of things that I I talked about so softness especially Mm -hmm. we're encouraged around emotion not to show emotion or to be ashamed of emotion if you think if you cry in front of somebody else the first thing you do is apologize I'm really sorry for getting upset it's actually just a normal emotion that's been released from your body. So why do we encourage to apologize around that? But it's allowing softness in and being okay with that. So again, this is something I mentioned in my talk, but three times as many men die from suicide as do women. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is a massive reflection of where we're getting this really, really wrong because we, we've ended up in this position where men are discouraged to talk about their emotions, to talk about how they feel, and they're actually really normal parts of being human. Mm-hmm. They're just normal parts. They're innate parts of who we are. And we've got to this point where particularly men are taught, don't show how you feel because that's weak. And it's when you think about it, it's actually ridiculous mm-hmm. because it's just normal. And I think because we've got to that point, that's why those statistics really sadly reflect that. Mm. So allowing things like softness in, understanding emotion is very, very normal, understanding that how men feel is really important as well. Because I think sometimes as well, what we do is we discourage men from, their feelings aren't as important, you've just got to get on with stuff. And that's not right, that's, Mm. this isn't right. So allowing things like softness in, being curious, really um, strong feminine characteristic, being creative, allowing that creative side to come out of you. And then things like being connected to other people, talking, being more verbal in how you articulate how you feel, um, practicing forgiveness. Forgiveness is another one. Acceptance, the ability to stand and accept who you are. And that doesn't mean stop striving to be a better version of yourself. Mm-hmm. what accepting of who you actually are as an individual and again questioning all these different things changing your life so that it's more in alignment with what you value um and then leaning into things like your intuition the ability to nurture yourself in different ways so something that I do with my clients is I get them to reframe how they see training nutrition uh, hydration sleep all those different things and I encourage them to see it more as a form of nurture so how do you nurture yourself And I think when you shift into that sort of perspective, people are more open-minded into thinking, "Hmm, I'm going to nurture myself today. That makes sense. Um, But I think it's just practicing these specific traits and understanding that they're actually really valuable things to have. But Mm -hmm. it's that curiosity and the challenge around what we're told is a societal norm. It's that bit for me. Mm -hmm. A lot in there, wasn't there? (laughs) 
No, no, it was fascinating. I was just listening to it. Um, I think speaking from a male perspective as well, like something that I've really struggled with myself is that self-nurturing. Um, I remember a few years ago, I got asked, you know, what do you do for fun? Well, like, what do you do to look after yourself? And that was easy for me. I was like, I go to the gym, I like eat right. I started listing off all this stuff. And and the, the, the lady I was speaking to, she was like, well, but what do you do to actually just relax? And I was like, I've just told you, like, those are the things, like I go for a walk and all that sort of stuff. And she was like, no, but like, what do you do to sit and like, n- just do nothing? I was like, oh, I don't do that. I was like, that, no, that's not something that I do. I don't, I don't really sit down and just do nothing because I just feel like it's a waste of time or I feel like it's a waste of opportunity. I get bored. I feel lazy. Like that was kind of my belief system coming into to play at that point. Um, but obviously then after that, I started to find meditation. I started to find just being mindfully present and stuff like that. And it changed my world. Do you know what's really interesting there, though, Dan? I went, I'm smiling because I went through the exact same thing. So I was was in, I was in therapy at the time. I was having some counselling and she said the exact same thing to me. So what do you do for fun? What do you do for Victoria? Yeah. And I did the same thing as you. Well, I train. And, yeah. and it was all job-based as well because that is essentially part of the job. But it's it was all stuff that at the time, because I was competing, Mm-hmm. That isn't self. It wasn't self-care. It was, mm-hmm. in hindsight now, it was actually a form of self-harm because I was pushing myself to mm-hmm. the, the absolute extreme. And I was exactly the same as you. I couldn't think of anything. Yeah. And she said to me, um, so how it was worded to me was, what is recharging your battery? And I tried to say, training. No, you can't have that. It's actually draining the battery. So think of something else. And I sat there and I couldn't think of one thing. And I, I thought that has that was such a massive light bulb moment for me. I couldn't yeah. think of one thing I do for myself that charges my battery up. And exactly the same as you, that was then when I started to look at things like meditation mm-hmm. and and just having that ability to recharge myself by just being present and mindful mm-hmm. and having breaks, having days off, knowing it's okay if you take a day off. It's okay mm-hmm. if you take a week off and doing things like that and actually really understanding what rest recovery and true nurture actually meant because I think what we've got at the minute in the fitness industry is a a lot of people at the forefront that are sort of celebrated and championed and all these different things they don't know how to nurture themselves because they're constantly living in this extreme Mm -hmm. and and it's it's interesting it's interesting to watch because what we've got then is people aspiring to be like certain influencers, like certain fitness celebrities, yeah. aspiring to be like something that actually really isn't fundamentally healthy, mm-hmm. really, because the nurture and the, the true self-care isn't there. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, like, let's take it to the polar extreme. If you look at people like Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, those sorts of guys, they've been very open about their working habits. You know, Elon Musk says he works 20 hours a day. What kind of balance is that? Like the stuff that he's achieved for humanity and and as a businessman is phenomenal, but you know, there's no way that he's living a fulfilled life. He is, you know, only achieving on a high level on one plane and that's business and he's smashing it. Don't get me wrong, 
but there's no way he's spiritually spiritually ba- balanced. I couldn't say that. That was a tongue twister then. <laughs> there's no way that he's balanced. There's no way that he's fulfilling good quality relationships, whether, you know, personal, romantic, you know, there's just no way that you can do that. Uh, yeah. And what's interesting there, because that is, that is your sense of curiosity. You've got the curiosity to question that. Most mm. people won't. They're just saying, I want to be like Elon Musk. Mm. I want to do whatever Elon Musk is doing. Okay, well, now I know that I've got to work 20-hour days, burn myself into the ground, completely sacrifice any sort of relationship, sex life, physical health, mm. family, all that sort of stuff. That's got to go. And mm. then people don't have that curiosity, exactly what you've just done and gone, hmm, well, that can't actually be... Mm. You can't be living with that much balance, and and mm. it's true. You just can't. You have, you can't. Something's got to give, and you've got to understand what do you truly value. If you value financial wealth, fame, success, those in the realms of that sort of area, like Elon mm. Musk, like Jeff Bezos, then knock yourself out. But if they're not actually the things that you value, don't pursue something that you are led to believe is is the more favorable way of living if it's Mm. not in alignment with what you actually want yeah i'd also argue as well and i'd also think if if that is what someone values i would say ask the question why do you value that Mm -hmm. because if you do value like being the the most famous or the most uh, wealthy person on the planet why and it's normally not because you've got the most amount of money. It's normally some on one, some unmet need that's not being fulfilled in your life that you could fulfill without basically killing yourself doing 20 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, what was I reading? And it was around sort of what they do on a day-to-day basis. And my instant reaction was, I bet they don't even really eat like consistently. Yeah. I bet they don't eat because they won't have time. It takes, if you think how long it actually takes to sit down mindfully, eat your meal mindfully, Mm. allow it to digest mindfully, they don't have time. So I'm thinking their health is not going to be in the best place possible. And the thing is, none of us know how we're going to, this is a bit of a morbid thing to say, but this is, none of us know how we're going to feel when we get to the end of our lives and what Mm. are we going to think about? What Mm. regrets are we going to have? What are we going to wish we did more of? What are we going to wish we did less of? None of us know how we're going to feel until we get to that point. We Mm. don't know that Elon Musk might get to the end of his life and think, I wish I hadn't done that. And I wish I'd spent more time with my wife, with my kids. We just don't, we don't know, do we? So Mm -hmm. I I read his book not too long ago and I think he's on his, I I don't know if I'm wrong, but I think he's on his third marriage already. Right. Obviously I don't know the personal ins and outs, but you know, that's, that's gotta be tough as well. Going through that many divorces. I mean, he's got multiple kids and he, you know, he seems like he's a great father, to be honest, with how busy he is. But yeah, there's, there's, that's got to be difficult. And I think there's a, another statistic as well is if you look at entrepreneurs, if you look at businessmen, male or female, um, they also have the highest levels of suicide. And I think that that's something to be looked at in more detail because. Yes, we are promoting to society. Like, you know, at the moment, being an entrepreneur is the in thing. It's big, it's glamorous, and that's what people think it is. But it's also not. It's also boring. It's also long hours sometimes. And, you know, sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes you can be more mindful and and plan things out and choose things. But it also isn't what people think it is. Mm, I think it's the 
the same with if people that are famous as well like mm. mental health doesn't you're not excluded from having mental health issues just because you're famous and I think again mm. that's what we are fed to believe is the mm. thing to strive for fame financial success mm -hmm. power status but they do not that does not mean you get a free pass to your physical and your mental health. Mm -hmm. So I think you have to make sure that your mental health and your physical health are in whatever it is that you're doing, that they are the priority because the other things don't guarantee them anyway. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a hippie thing to say, but happiness doesn't come from fine. It doesn't, it just doesn't come from financial success status or all those different things. I think there was some research done and, the self-rated uh, perceived levels of happiness after I think 60 grand a year is the same. So yeah. once people get over the threshold of 60,000 pounds a year, people's self-rated levels of happiness, whether they're a millionaire or billionaire, still the same. Mm -hmm. so, so it's not the be all and end all. It's not, yeah. it's not everything. I think the great example of that is, you know, when people are counting down their days to retirement, you know, and they're like, when I retire, it's just everything's going to be good. I can do what I want. And, you know, when they get to retirement, they then are suddenly bored. They've got all this time on their hands. They don't necessarily know what they want to do. It's not panned out. It's not necessarily solved their problems in the way that they thought it would. And, I, and the, so a question that I often ask my clients is, I want you to imagine yourself on your last day of work and you're about to retire. Are you doing now, like in terms of your health and, and wellness, are you doing the things now to make sure that when you retire, you're going to be physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally in the pl place and position that you want to be? Mm -hmm. And more often than not, the answer to that question is no. So, okay, mm -hmm. what do we need to do then? And it's never, well, I need to work harder. It's yeah. make sure I'm eating better. I need to make sure I'm doing more exercise. I need to make sure I'm prioritizing my sleep, like mm -hmm. those sorts of things. So when I ask mm -hmm. that question to my clients, the answer is never, ever, I need to work so much harder. <laughs> mm. I need yeah. to do more time at work. And I think yeah. sometimes you have to get people to kind of project forwards to be able to take the step back to where they are right now. Mm. Um, but we, again, we're in a society where we absolutely run ourselves into the ground in sort of like the best years of our life where we do have more physical capability. Mm. We are able to do other stuff and then when we get to retirement age what was it all for so that you can enjoy mm. the last 10 15 years of your life with a bit of money it's yeah, yeah. I yeah. Like, things like that blow my mind <laughs> i um i had a really good experience or of that what you've just described there of the fast-paced culture because i went to i lived in india for 14 months and uh, i was doing business out there i was doing lots of stuff it was a really cool time but it used to drive me nuts or initially it drove me nuts when like we'd set deadlines within India because like a deadline here, it's a steady, it's a fast, it's a hard set rule. Like you, you just don't miss it. Like it's, it's impolite. It's, you know, there's just so much cultural um, negativity around miss missing a deadline. But in India, they have this really cool way of living. Like they're almost accidentally mindful or spiritual. I would describe it as is because they'd have like a family wedding and they'd all just disappear and go like, like 30, 40 of them would just disappear and go to the, the wedding for a few days. And then like the deadline would come up and they'd be like, well, like we were at the wedding. So we, we didn't do it. And like my like Westernized brain was just like, well, yeah, but you knew that I was coming up. So just work around it. 
And then the, the more time I was there, I was starting to think, well, actually, no, they're getting this right. I was like, well, they're getting this right. They're, you know, making sure that they're living their life. They're able to, they're, yeah, fine, the deadline wasn't hit, but the work was done eventually. But they managed to kind of meander their way through this natural balance of family events. You know, if they were unwell, they were unwell. That was it. You know, they, they, they didn't force themselves into work, which we have in this, this society as well. Less so now because of the pandemic, people are a lot more mindful of that. But, you know, previous to that, I would, I, there's, I almost had like this weird ego set, like centric pridefulness about not taking a day off sick. Like it was so, that is toxic. But I remember thinking, you know, again, that was something that I really looked hard about the way that we were living in the West versus the way that they lived and just thought, actually, you know, we could learn a lot from that. And like, like both ways we can learn from each other. But I think that the fast paced culture, it's just not healthy for any of us because we're just so in demand and we're so accessible now. If we need something, we expect it now. That instant gratification has never been higher. Yeah. Oh, com- gosh, completely. But if you think even, even at school, you have attendance awards. So yeah. best attendance. Mm-hmm. And that again when you challenge that and you're curious around it that's actually a really bad message to give to kids so you have to come to school or you have to show up no matter what the circumstances are otherwise you don't get the reward of a gold star but if you're unwell or if you do have family things that you want to attend to or whatever the circumstances are sometimes like there's things that should take priority over simply just turning up Mm-hmm. And it's it's difficult to get these things across, isn't it? Because that what I'm not saying is yeah. don't work hard, don't don't yeah. show up for yourself. But it's understanding when to push and when to pull. And I think probably in in the environment that you were in, they've got a better understanding of when to push and when to pull, and have a balance mm-hmm. of those two. Whereas in the UK, we're just push, push, push. And that's why, my, me especially as a, a coach of women so many women are burnt out massively burnt out stressed unwell got anxiety got depression Mm -hmm. lots of different things because they're constantly trying to go on push mode and find it actually really difficult to understand you need to pull back a little bit Mm. so yeah really interesting Mm. so a few years ago i read a book um and the book was called ted talks so obviously I know you've done your TEDx talk. I've, I've listened to it and it was, it was really, really good. And I, in that book, like I, it's something that I've always been interested in because I think public speaking is an art that we've lost. You know, our parents or grandparents had um, debate lessons and stuff like that. But I think now language is kind of one of those things that reading is becoming less common and, you know, debating, like we don't have a healthy form of debate now. Like if you disagree with someone, it's, you know, a few harsh words, as if it's a guy as well, it's a few harsh words followed by throwing fists. I think that there's, the book fascinated me in many ways because it it got me to rethink about how we were communicating with people on a, on a very regular basis, not just in a talk con, uh, context. Um, but talk me through your experience of public speaking. How did you go from this idea or you were approached to do the TED Talk to putting pen to paper to then on stage, in the moment, delivering your message. Okay, so I'm happy to talk. If it's 
something controversial, but it's something I genuinely believe in. I'm happy to say it. And everything I do, everything I say always comes from a good, positive, warm place in my heart. It always comes from a really good place. But as a female, when you do start talking about sort of feminist areas or or those sorts of things you do very much run the risk and I've experienced this a hell of a lot of almost being well you you kind of put on a stake like a witch and burn (laughs) and I presume that's how that's what happened to those women obviously in in the past if you had something to say that was controversial and people didn't like it excuse me you have stones thrown at you you're mm. criticised, you're called names, you have different, obviously horrible things said to you or, or whatever. And I think because I've always been happy to talk about controversial topics, even when they're not met with positive reception, even mm. though they actually come from a really good place. Um, I think that was why I originally got approached, Victoria, have you got an idea? Is there something you would like to share? And mm-hmm. and of course there was. And the talk that I delivered was just everything that I believed in. It was straight mm-hmm. from my heart. It's my soul in a speech. And I was asked, I was approached to do um, an application. So I did. And I think because it's something that I'm obviously very, very passionate about that came through on my application. So I was obviously straight straight into being able to deliver. And then we had a six month period of, here's your idea to getting on stage. Now, of course, me getting on stage is nothing new. It's nothing that I'm not used to doing, even though it's in a bit bit of a different realm uh, in terms of speaking. So I just did exactly what I would do with a competition. This is the end date. This is where I am right now. What needs to happen in the middle to make sure that I absolutely nail what I've got to do. So I just kind of reverse engineered it and got everything down on a piece of paper and just set myself little goalposts of, right, what needs to be done by month one, two, three, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll be totally honest with you. It didn't take me very long to get it down on paper because again, it's something that I I genuinely believe in. It's not make up a speech about some random topic it was talk about what is really authentic and true to you so it didn't take me long to write it at all Mm -hmm. and then I just memorized it I I just took a paragraph at a time memorized it and I just went over it and over it and over it again and going right back to those lessons that we were talking about right at the beginning things Mm -hmm. that I learned from being three years old so attention to detail repetition Mm -hmm. sacrificing other things and just practice and I just treated it as I did dancing, as I did competing, as I have done setting up business and was just really meticulous with with what I did and just made sure I knew it inside and out. You could ask me right now, Dan, deliver your TEDx speech. It is in my brain. Uh, That was going to be my next question, actually, not to deliver the speech, but whether you had like an autoprompter or something just there in case. No, nothing at all. Um, so it, it's literally, you go on stage, off you go, deliver your speech. You've got nothing. So if you stumble or if you forget, you there's, no, <laughs> there's nothing, which is actually quite terrifying. But yeah. again, the same with dancing, the same with competing. If you've practiced and you have done it over and over and over again, it's autopilot. It's in my brain forever as is my posing routine from being on stage. I could do you and I walk, right? Because <laughs> I did it over and over again. Yeah. It's just that, it's mind-muscle connection, obviously, with your competing, mm-hmm. but with, obviously, 
delivering a speech it's just it was just because I did it over and over again and treated it the same way that I did everything else mm. but again because it's a, something that I'm genuinely so passionate about and I love so much even if mm. I had lost where I was I probably could have somehow kept going um but obviously I've been on stage since I was three years yeah. old and I have actually done public speaking on and off throughout that time so I think the first public speech I had to deliver was when I was 17 18 and I was head girl at school and I was asked to deliver a speech in front of a, mm. a big group of people I wasn't the same person then as obviously yeah. now and that was terrifying it was awful <laughs> I hated every second yeah. of it but I had that experience and I think the thing with public speaking is you just have to get over yourself a little bit mm. and just get on with it because the more you same as anything the more you do it the mm. easier it becomes the more natural it becomes if you think when we first went into the pandemic the idea of talking on a zoom in front of a group of people would probably be quite terrifying now we all just do it like it we don't care it's nothing um but i'd also delivered a big uh, workshop to the south yorkshire police about four months before and that was quite, obviously that was quite intimidating. Um, but yeah, you just have to just practice and, and just kind of get over yourself a little bit. And if what you're delivering is a really important message, I think it's more selfish not to share it. So yeah. how, I, how I tried to see it was, if I don't deliver this speech and do a good job and I don't get this message that I have out into the world, I'm doing the world a disservice because mm -hmm. there's so much value in it and mm. it's got the potential to make people think in a different way and lead to changes in the world that we have so if I don't deliver it that's actually really mm. selfish on my part that's how I tried to see it no no that's a good way of seeing it and I think speaking from my own experience I I love those moments of uncomfortableness you know that that when you, something makes you go oh I'm not sure whether I can do that that's when I it gets my attention normally because uh, I first experienced that, you know, with with sports very young, like they tell us to do like a move in gymnastics that was more advanced. It was like, you know, a, a flip or we'd be doing something on the pommel or any piece of equipment and it would step up a notch. I'd be, get that moment of like, but then I think I think I only got excited by those moments because I saw what happens when you stick to it when you reach that point that you were kind of doubtful that you could get to, and then the sense of achievement and, and, and self-esteem that that brought along with it. And I think that that is something that I think a lot of people get very scared of, yeah. very, very scared of. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's having the bravery to push that boundary, isn't it? In whatever capacity that is and mm -hmm. taking a risk and knowing mm -hmm. it's going to be, even if it doesn't work out, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Like you'll be okay. So what, again, something I do with my clients is when they're ruminating or whittling about something, I get them to do something called worst case scenario. So if they're panicking about something, I'm like, okay, so what would happen if, if that happened? Oh, okay. So what would happen if that happened? And I get them right down to what is the root of the worst case scenario that they're envisaging it, envisaging it, I can't speak, what they're having in mind. And I get them to then challenge that because it's usually what you, the reason that you think you don't want to do something, you have to keep going and really get down to what is the core fear or what is the worst case scenario that's kind of stopping you there. So if it is something in the realms of dancing or gymnastics or like I was the same as you when I used to do cheerleading mm -hmm. and my coaches say right we're gonna try this new toss today and yeah. 
I've got four people that I've got to trust are going to catch me. And sometimes they didn't. But I think obviously sometimes pushing that boundary and going, right, what is the worst case scenario? All oh, right, it's that. What are the chances of that happening? Probably very, very slim. Am I going to be okay even if that does happen? Yes, I'll be absolutely fine. And just being really, really brave to take the risk even when you can't see something. And I, I, I genuinely think because you've obviously done gymnastics and dance and, and as have I, it's building that self-trust that you'll mm. be okay you'll be okay and I think it makes you a little bit fearless mm. I do think um the more the more challenging and the more adversity that you go through the more challenging situations that you go through does make a big difference as well you generally find don't you the people that have had the most mm. adversity the more difficult things in life are generally a little bit more fearless as well mm. I definitely think that's that's part of me I'm mm. pretty fearless just because of things that I've been through. We'll bring it back to that word that you mentioned earlier, resilience. Yeah. So after you'd done this um, TEDx event and you, you know, the video has been released, you've experienced the highs of, you know, performing again, you also got another opportunity, didn't you? So they made you a director of TEDx Doncaster. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So, how did that come about and also yeah in fact how did that come about first and foremost so that came about obviously delivered my speech um went down really well mm-hmm. and i think because i am so passionate about what i do and because i'm obviously successful in the business world as well and got other random strings to my bow mm-hmm. the person that holds the license asked me um would I consider being a director, <clears throat> excuse me, because he'd done that event pretty much by himself. And it's a huge, it's a huge, huge event to do. And I think alongside, obviously, what I delivered, he could see other aspects of my personality and my ambition, my drive and my general want to make things better, my commitment to my hometown. Um, mm-hmm. As we were talking before, we pressed record, we have a bit of a brain drain on Doncaster and more educated and more skilled people generally tend to leave the town. And I think because I'm very committed to my hometown as well, it, it just I was just kind of like the perfect fit to take in TEDx Doncaster to the next level. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows I am. I always have a really big vision as well. I'm not scared to push mm-hmm. those boundaries and say, I want to be the best in the country. Mm-hmm. I want to be a flagship event for the world I, I'm not scared to to do those things so mm-hmm. I think it, it was probably I just was the perfect fit to to be a director really mm-hmm. and then of course the work that I do predominantly revolves around women of course my talk is all about the feminine my mission in life is to make women feel like they are capable of doing anything to realize that we don't have to be suppressed, that we don't have to just smile and decorate the world and mm. not call people out when they make us feel uncomfortable. I think obviously then with TEDx women, it was just like, this is this is Vic's jam. This is what Vic's gotta do, so yeah. Awesome. So talk me, I mean, you've, you've spoken to it a little bit there, but what is your ultimate goal for TEDx Doncaster then? So with TEDx Doncaster, I, 
obviously I'm in, involved in both. So what I'd like to do, if that's okay, I will kind of say what my ultimate goal is for TEDx Women, mm-hmm. um, because that's my event. So TEDx Doncaster, I share with the other directors, whereas TEDx Women is just fine. Um, and what I want to do with that is make it one of the most significant women's events in the UK um, and showcase what we have in South Yorkshire. Again, as we were talking before we, we kind of press record, Doncaster has a really bad reputation. I've experienced it my whole entire life. When I tell people I'm from Doncaster, people almost feel a little bit sorry for me. (laughs) They feel a little bit sorry for me. They assume I'm not very intelligent, that I'm not very successful, simply because of where I was born and raised. So what I also want to do is is to help change and challenge the perception that this town has, because there's Mm -hmm people here that are just unbelievable so my hope for it is to grow that event so it becomes a national representation of what TEDx women is about what it means and to of course just challenge the views that we have around women and you know sexism does still exist that's that's a topic for another day um but it does very much so so to challenge all these different things to discuss topics that we're too scared to talk about. Um, I obviously don't want to disclose what some of the talks are going to be about, but some of them mm-hmm. are about subject areas that that nobody talks about, even though it's experienced by us all. We don't talk yeah. about them. So it's having those conversations. Um, and I actually think it's really important for men to be present in, in that environment as well, because it's things that we all need to be aware of, you know, mm-hmm. talking about things like menopause and domestic abuse domestic violence and and those sorts of areas things that we don't talk about and they're actually really really common so I think just raising the awareness of issues that we face as a society but also helping to put not only Doncaster on the map but Doncaster women on the map as well Mm -hmm. I love that that's good that's a great ambition to have um when is your first event have you got that far yeah, we do. So this year we have three events. So we have TEDx uh, Doncaster, which is sort of like the flagship event that is in October. Mm-hmm. And we have TEDx Women, which is in December. And then I'm pretty sure TEDx Youth is going to be sort of November time. So more towards the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And how do people get involved in that if they want to like tickets, speaking, anything? So just literally to the to the website, which is TEDx Doncaster, I think mm-hmm. it's .co.uk. I need to check that, maybe .com. Um, but it's just, if you just put in TEDx Doncaster, it will take you straight to the uh, straight to the website, and then it's just self-explanatory from there. So people that want to apply to speak, you just hit the apply to speak button. It takes you through the process. There'll mm-hmm. be a link to the tickets as well. Um, they're capped at a hundred. So with TED. TEDx events you have to you in certain categories depending on what license you've got so we have it capped at 100 people so it's a much more Mm. intimate exclusive event whereas you can go to the bigger events I went to TEDx Manchester at the weekend 2,000 people there wow yeah yeah Victoria thank you so much for coming on it's been a great conversation before we end it is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you want to quickly touch on now so no, I think it, I think my sort of final thought, my final message is don't be scared to be curious and challenge what you're constantly told through external sources. Mm, that's a perfect final message, I think. Um, thank you so much for coming on. 
I'd love to have you back on at some other point. We can deep dive on a topic of your choosing. Um, but I do think that that would be really, really cool to do. Thank you to everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you all soon.